Hi, it's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease in Childhood. As always, I'm here with Rachel Becker, our Senior Editor, to record the next Atoms instalment. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks, Nick. Happy to be here, as always. Thank you. As as usual, we are a bit spoilt for choice and we've had to be uh, slightly, well, we could say ruthless in our selection, but we've found some real high points. What stuck out for you, Rachel? I think in the November Atoms, you have beautifully highlighted uh, that naming something or someone's not trivial. And I think we'll discuss five papers that illustrate this um, and for different reasons. Let's start with Rob Wheeler's paper, Naming of Children, and this is part of his excellent series, um, Clinical Law for Clinical Practice. Now, in this paper, he describes maybe the converse of Juliet Caplet's words in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. It's uh, interesting to quote Shakespeare on this podcast, but here we go. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So naming matters. Naming is very helpful in identification or navigating our world. But as soon as identification occurs, there's recognition, uh, including false recognition, closing our minds due to, for instance, associating with something or some other uh, with similar name, but different, or an association with something of the same name, but different, or the same thing, but different now than once was. So there's endless possibilities. That gave me food for thought. The next paper illustrates how making a diagnosis, i.e. naming, may not be straightforward. Uh, and that's due to the lack of ancillary uh, diagnostic resources, Nick. Yes, it's it's a hoary old chestnut, but TB and uh, uh, in all its forms and tuberculous meningitis particularly has never completely been figured out, I suppose. So it occurs in a small percentage of children with a primary TB, the secondary form, only about 1% to 2%. But the sequelae can be absolutely devastating. Uh, the key, of course, is to diagnose early so that appropriate treatment can be given. And that's in the settings in which it tends to occur, in which it's prevalent, is often easier said than done. We don't really fully understand the pathophysiology of TBM, but we do have a gold standard diagnosing TBM and the gold standard test, either MTB culture or DNA from CSF, is not simply not readily available in many parts of the world. Early diagnosis allows for early treatment and that has far better outcomes. So with that preamble, uh, I want to talk about uh, the paper in this edition of ADC from Dr. Setju Andra Stuti and colleagues at the University of Indonesia in their paper, Development of Clinical-Based Scoring System to Diagnose Tuberculous Meningitis in Children. This was a retrospective cross-sectional study. They were able to look at 167 children between the age of three months to 18 years, and they were admitted to the National Tertiary Hospital in Indonesia with a discharge um, diagnosis uh, of meningitis using the ICD-10 um, system. The authors modelled systemic and neurological parameters for a clinical scoring system, and they got to a very impressive specificity of 91.1% and a positive predictive value that went with that with 909 
the sensitivity on the Conway is not so good, 47.1%, uh, and uh, maybe similarly unhelpful negative predictive value of 63.4%. And that brings us back to the, to the question, um, is this good enough to name something tuberculous meningitis? What a great question. I think if we look at the whole picture, I would say yes, if there's no access to the gold standard, because the key difference is starting early corticosteroids, which can be ultimate neurocognitive outcome predicting. So a test isn't perfect, um, and one of the parameters is based on chest X-ray changes. So some access to at least basic X-ray is helpful, though not essential. And ultimately, in many settings, this is currently as good as it gets. The next paper is similar in that the authors describe test accuracy again. When can we confidently name and or not name? The disease is different, but the setting for which this paper has most relevance is quite similar. So in the paper, Sweat Conductivity Diagnostic Accuracy for Cystic Fibrosis, a systematic review and meta-analysis by Lin Ji Zhang and colleagues in Belo Horizonte, Brazil, were presented with evidence based on 10 studies and over 8,000 patients, which were put together in a systematic review and meta-analysis. The question they ask is whether or not we can commit a child, I give the name to the diagnosis of cystic fibrosis based on a sweat conductivity. Why would one choose to diagnose CF by any other means than the gold standard measuring sweat chloride? Well, as the authors have previously explained uh, in their own paper from their own centre in ADC, not everywhere is this specialised test, sweat chloride, available. Instead, one could instead use sweat conductivity as a proxy. It's been around a long time. It was pioneered in the 1950s and early 60s by Dr. Harry Schwachmann in Cincinnati, uh, where he showed clearly that increased conductivity parallels increasing chloride concentrations in sweat. On the one hand, I'm delighted that people are finding ways around what might be the gold standard. On the other hand, I'm saddened that folk have to do this. Sweat conductivity uh, does feature in several guidelines as a screening tool around the world. But then the question is, it is, good, is it good enough as a diagnostic tool? There's uh, good things about it. It's simple. Uh, the test result is known immediately, uh, so very attractive. But how well does it perform in ruling in and or ruling out? Now, the authors suggest that based on their findings, uh, the quality of evidence is moderate with a very large likelihood of disease present in the context of a positive test. And in the case of a negative test, CF was unlikely to be the case. Now, probably I'd say with a sensitivity of 0.97 and a specificity of 0.99, respectively, that's pretty good. If you were in a situation where you had to make that choice, I think it would be a reasonable one to make. The fourth paper now, we take a slightly different tack. The paper is called Understanding Caregiver Experiences with Disease-Modifying Therapies for Spinal Muscular Atrophy, a qualitative study by Lena Ziao and colleagues at SickKids in Toronto, Canada. The authors, or really the interviewees via the authors, name an elephant in the room. In a high-income country such as Canada, with access to high-end drugs such as nusinersin, onasmanogene, 
Abipavirec and Risvidam that modify the hitherto devastating neuromuscular disease, spinal muscular dystrophy, or SMA, but can't take for granted that is equity in distribution. Currently, there's a regional system in place in Canada, but it's in the early days, family faced unjust barriers in sourcing this potentially life-saving drug. It's extraordinarily costly. There was a lack of infrastructure and different qualification thresholds caused further inequity. Now, what do you say to that, Nick? Well, I found it very poignant and thought-provoking. So not only did some families go to extreme lengths to obtain the drugs, a reflection of families in one country, um, similar inequity occurring at a country level with um, three quarters not having regulatory approval for distributing these drugs at all. And on that note, we end with naming as an entry point for diagnosing a wide range of illnesses. In the paper, Hemoptysis, is it really from the lungs? The well child who spits out blood by Ian Balfour-Lynn at the Brompton Hospital in London. We're urged not to call blood in the mouth haemoptysis before we actually know that the blood originates from the respiratory tract under the larynx. Literally speaking, ptysis is spit and haemo pertains to blood. Here the meaning of the word haemoptysis has become something more specific rather than just spitting blood. It's the fact that it comes from the lower airways or at least under the larynx that gives it its name, and it's important to stick to that. The latter, of course, is quite a mouthful, but one worth the effort. Thanks, as always, Rachel. We could go on, but we'll sign off now. Um, do check out the pod and the rest of the issue on the usual sites, uh, Apple, Spotify, and, of course, the journal website. More from us next time. Thanks for today, Rachel. Thanks for me, and bye. <laughs>